hello friends and welcome to Zippy the Wonder Snail. We are so glad to have you zipping along with us once again today as we zip through news, culture, and the things that matter to you. Hello Tim, how are you? Hey Jason, I am well, how are you doing? I'm good, glad this is a podcast and not a video, that dancing was pretty bad. It was, but I hope our listeners have started to pick up the zippy dance as well. You just can't feel any better than when you're dancing along to that wonderful theme music. I agree. (laughs) Well, we have a full show today. We have so much to talk about, and we're going to start with a musical segment today. Uh, We're picking up on a piece, Jason, that you just shared on Open for Business last week on John Mayer's new album. Perhaps you'd like to just talk about it a bit. Yeah, um, I think uh, the album came out in uh, late June, uh, and I listened to it, and now I'm going to review it for you. I wrote a review for Open for Business, but I thought it was really great. I thought it was a kind of a, a rehash of maybe the late 80s, early 90s and its musical sensibilities. Very pop, very uh, mainstream and in its its instrumentation and all that. It sounds like a Hall & Oates album broke out. I said that to you before, but I'm glad you finally uh, got a chance to listen to it, Tim. And uh, I know you had some thoughts along that line. Yeah, I was really glad to get to listen to it. And I think I was pleased to see that it seemed like it was a bit of a return to Mayer's roots. It felt like he was a little lost over the last decade, especially after all those incredibly strong hits he had in the 2000s. And you and I were were talking about, for example, um, in Continuum and how dominant it was in the, the, the conversation, cultural conversation for a while, how people saw, for example, waiting for the world to change as sort of capturing the moment during that tension we had around the second Iraq war and, and, and so on. And it felt like after that, he just couldn't quite bring it home again. There, I mean, the f- next few albums after that felt like they were kind of a progression that was less and less of an influence, less and less relevant. And this felt more like the John Mayer I remember from years ago. Yeah, what's really interesting is that if you do experimentation, which every, you know, mainstream pop artist loves to do, they love to be successful enough to be like, all right, I'm going to do something crazy and do what I want. But if it doesn't work with your audience, you don't change anything. So in that way, you're sort of called back to what you did before. And in a sense, this is not what he did before. It's more of a sort of like a love letter to uh, 70s and 80s pop or pop rock. Uh, So in that sense, it's a little bit of a departure. But it's good to know that this guy can still construct a melody and maybe turn a little bit of a phrase, even if it's not as philosophically penetrating, say, as his debut album or or heavier things, which was the second album in 03. Um, but I liked it. I liked being reminded of a late 80s Hall & Oates record. That was a pleasant experience. And I think what you said off the air, which caught my attention, was you said uh, it's not the sort of thing that's going to be earth-shattering, but I really enjoyed listening to it. And that's the same feeling I had. I really enjoyed it. It's not going to change my life, but if I'm going to spend 38 38 minutes listening to anything, uh, that was a pretty pleasant 38 minutes. Yeah, pleasant seems like a a good word for it. It it felt like it was just a 38-minute musical conversation with John Mayer, where a lot of times albums feel like they're very segmented, that there's not a lot of thought put 
to where things go. And I know there is, but it often feels a bit arbitrary. But I'd say on this one, it really felt very well constructed and it, it all flows very nicely. Maybe the, the downside there, if there is some such a thing, I'd say is that I, I don't know if there was any one part of it that just stood out to me. It just felt like a 38-minute piece almost to me. Right. I think, well, there's a couple of tracks on there that I I thought were, were really, really enjoyable. Um, but I think for John, just to get back into his his range and to his area and to be to be relevant again and if and if his path back to relevance is to give nostalgia to his gen x and older millennial audience then that's what he needs to do um so and there's nothing wrong with that i i mentioned hall and oats before there was an album in 1988 called oh yeah and that was the Hall & Oates uh, 1988 release, and that was the last charting Hall & Oates album, uh, at least until 97 when they uh, hit the soft rock chart pretty heavily with that record. Uh, but yeah, the last top 40 hit for Hall & Oates was in 88, and it was it it was a very nice lead-in, that album, to the 90s R&B. And they sort of, even though they started in the 70s, they were really cutting edge and they could they could anticipate uh, those next things coming. And I feel like that's the connection for John is he might be leading us into uh, something else that's coming next. So that's a credit to him as well, because anytime you remind your listeners of Rock and Roll Hall of Famers, you're probably doing a good thing. Absolutely. And and I think you raise a good point on nostalgia and aiming for it. Certainly, artists can get caught up in trying to continue to be innovative and in the sense that they're trying to out-innovate themselves. And Mayer could have gotten bound up trying to think of how could he write another album that would be so pinpoint on the cultural moment as his early work. But I, I, while this isn't that, it's, it's like you said, pleasant. And I, I think our listeners would enjoy it. It's just a nice thing to listen to. It'd be nice background music. So it's not like Waiting for the World to Change or No Such Thing or some of those other really unescapably catchy, earworm, philosophically charged with the moment type songs or albums. But I, I think it brings him back to relevance and it certainly gives him a platform if he wants to release another album in a year or two that does experiment more. There's more room to do that because he's demonstrated he just still has basic songwriting chops and it, it's pleasant. He's a great guitar player. He loves the blues and, and he just needs to make an album and make some cash and have some cultural relevance so he can continue making the music that he wants to make. You know, because if you don't make money for the record labels, you can be as creative as you want to, but you won't have a platform. So this is going to help him do that to still have a platform. And he still writes good songs. I think his early albums were more philosophical, trying to find out the meaning of life. And this is more like, hey, uh, I don't know if I know the meaning of life, but I'm 40 and I still don't know what love is, so let me figure that out a little bit. So maybe it might be too inwardly focused for some listeners, but I liked it because I'm pushing 40 and still in the friend zone, so I was fine with it. Yeah, I, I I really did enjoy it. Unlike, like I said, some of his records over the last decade, it just felt like he had his moment and like so many artists, his moment had passed. This didn't feel that way. It felt very much like he was still in his prime. I agree. I agree completely. Well, um, got anything else on that, comrade? No, I'm pretty much done with that. So that'll bring us 
to our first sponsor, which is Goretti Fine Art. Uh, that's a sacred art business headed by my friend George Katz and his sister Polly. So if you have uh, any need for sacred art or murals or altar pieces or any such thing, Goretti Fine Art will help you to meet your needs. That sounds like a wonderful thing to check out. I'm so glad to have them as a sponsor of the show tonight. And looking at their art, it looks like they are really talented. I was saying to you, it reminds me of Baroque-style art. It's really quite striking, and hopefully our listeners will go and check them out and reach out to them. When you're evoking the high points of Western culture, it can't be too bad. So check them out. Maybe you can find some art that you can use in your worship space or even in your home. And if you do, please make sure to let them know that you heard about them on Zippy. Well, we started off with sort of soft pop rock. Now we're going to get to rapid fire politics. We're going to try something new on Zippy today, and that is running through three different political topics with exactly three minutes each. And if you know Jason and myself, you know this is going to be a challenge for both of us. But maybe that's half the fun. So you can go ahead right now and decide if we're going to be able to hold to our time limit. We do have a nice bell that's going to make sure to keep us on track. So, Jason, first topic. We have a migrant situation that's been capturing headlines over the last couple of weeks. Certainly something that's embroiled the Biden administration. What do you make of it? Well, I make that we have a a decision, a legal decision, the Flores decision, all the way back in 1997 that governs even the basic humane treatment of migrants, and we're still not following it. There was a ProPublica piece back in 2015 about the Obama administration's failure to uphold basic dignity for migrants, uh, whether they be illegals or those requesting amnesty. So there's a lot of work to do. There was a lot of stuff that you know I was very critical with the Trump administration about. But if we don't improve those things, we're just repeating the same mistakes. And the dignity of human persons uh, knows no party or political squabbling uh, as some abiding thing that can continue. So we just need to stop that. We need to have the administration abide by the legal decisions that have already been made. And if they make promises to migrants, and if they make promises uh, relative to migrants to the voters, they need to uphold those promises. And if they don't, they need to be held accountable. So that that's my basic feeling on the migrant crisis. We can do better. I'm heartened by the fact that certain legal uh, decisions are coming out in the federal courts uh, granting people more leeway to provide aid to suffering migrants who might be crossing the border in a dangerous way, uh, you know, crossing the desert, possibly dehydrated and hungry and, and little kids and those kind of things. So anytime there's a little more, a bit more liberality in the Good Samaritan laws, I'm really thrilled about that. And then our politicians just need to be more consistent, have a consistent plan, and have a plan that upholds human dignity. And frankly, the Biden administration is failing in this right now. So that'll be my criticism for the week there. So what does that ultimately look like? This is something I've been wrestling with. What does it look like to offer a caring, humane response to migrants? Because it seems like part of the issue has become People heard that the Biden administration was going to be different, that it was going to be kinder to to migrants, it was going to offer a new face for the United States, and the response seems to have been, 
that more people want to migrate in. And as more people want to migrate in, the Biden administration is almost looking more like the Trump administration because it doesn't know what to do with all the migrants coming. What would you say looks like the solution to that? I would say that if we're going to have legitimate due process for these cases, whether it be illegal crossing or amnesty proceeding, if we're going to have actual due process, then we need to have facilities, holding facilities that are befitting for human beings. And if we can't do that, then we need to forego the legal processes which caused them to be held in the first place. Amen. So I'd rather them not be held than be held in substandard conditions. Well, you heard the gong, and that's all we're going to touch on that at the moment. Not that it's not a serious situation we ought to come back to, but today we're just getting a taste of it. And our next rapid-fire political topic is about executive privilege. And this is kind of an interesting topic. The Biden administration has indicated that it is interested in releasing the documents about the Trump administration concerning January 6th. On the other hand, President Trump, who of course is no longer in office, has said that he is exerting executive privilege to prevent those documents from being released. And so there's a real interesting legal question here of what authority does a ex-president have to exert executive privilege over the documents pertaining to his administration? Jason, your thoughts? Depending on the situation, there are aspects of executive privilege which obtain even when that executive is not in office. If that executive privilege pertains to national security or the internal deliberations of the administration, even if some of that would be legitimately embarrassing and that they should be embarrassed, a lot of that will be protected. So I would not be shocked at all if Trump and his allies won that particular case. And I'm not actually that surprised, and we talked about this off the air, that the Biden administration would sort of defend them on some of this, um, depending on what it is. Because privileges lost for one executive will be privileges lost for another down the road, and none of them wants that to happen. So we'll see. They may be uh, they may be doing a little bit of kabuki theater with respect to their own voters because they're kind of saying to their own voters, well, anything we can do to embarrass the Trump administration would be a good thing. But behind the scenes, they're sticking up for the Trump administration because the next administration that could be in the dock is them. So I think you're going to be a little bit surprised by how this turns out. And I think that our our big raft of cases on executive privilege was, of course, Nixon in the Watergate situation. So he didn't win a lot of that stuff with respect to the Pentagon Papers. But if it touched on national security, you know, they can't touch it. And there's a big window of time where none of that stuff is accessible uh, by the public or even by the court uh, until the national security uh, threat or time has passed. I think it's like 25 years typically for some of that sensitive stuff. So we may be surprised on that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what exactly the Biden administration does. Certainly the infamous anonymous sources speaking to newspapers have indicated that President Biden would like to release these documents. But if he doesn't or they sort of hold back certain things, that would certainly go along with what you're saying. And I think that's sort of intriguing to me for exactly the reason you said, because we've gotten to such a different place politically. It wouldn't surprise me in the least if you start to see administrations not respecting these sorts of traditions about protecting the previous administration. And yet, I do wonder if if it does get to the point where one administration turns in the documents of the previous, that just continues to kind of push along that that political mess that we have where 
each administration simply trying to one-up the previous one. Well, uh, that's going, going, gong, and we're on to our final topic. We've actually touched on infrastructure before, and we are going to kind of do a very quick update on what's going on on the infrastructure package that's making its way through Congress. Jason. Well, the Democrat, the Democrats led by President Biden and his allies in the Congress are still trying to flip the moderate members of the Senate by the name of Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin and also uh, more moderate House members as well. Uh, and whether or not they'll be able to do it is an interesting question because it seems like for their political lives, both of those two are tacking toward the center or even to the right. And what's surprising on this, the surprising aspect is not what those moderates will do, but what actually Bernie Sanders is doing, because he's supporting the $3.5 trillion infrastructure package. So the idea that Bernie doesn't know how to play well with others is greatly exaggerated, because right now he's supporting Biden's infrastructure package. So that's interesting. We know probably we're not going to see AOC support it and some of her progressive allies in the House, but see Bernie supporting it is a big shocking thing. And again, if there can be any sort of detente between the moderates and the progressives among the Democrats, I think that spells big trouble for the Republicans politically. Yeah, if that does come up, it will be quite interesting how that would play out. So far, Mansion and Cinema seem pretty set on the idea that this package is simply too big. So I, I kind of wonder how that's going to play out. It doesn't seem like they're willing to go to the $3.5 trillion package, and folks like Sanders don't seem to be willing to go any less. That already seems like a compromise to Bernie, as you, you mentioned. What I, what I might do, if it were me, is I would say, okay, Bernie, you can get a bona fide minimum wage bill or you can get this infrastructure package, one or the other, um, but not both. So if you want a bigger one, which is what I would anticipate, then you're not going to get the minimum wage. And if you get the minimum wage, we're going to have to cut this other thing down. So maybe that's what the moderates in the Senate are pushing for. I don't know. Maybe they're not principled at all. Maybe they're just going after some voters uh, that I don't know the identity of, some weirdly fiscally moderate, socially liberal voters in Arizona and West Virginia. But I wouldn't think that there's any socially liberal voters of Joe Manchin in West Virginia in the first place. So I don't know what's going on there. Uh, Those senators are a mystery to me. It seems to me, if anything, since both of them come from at least purple, if not red states, a lot of it surely has to be that they recognize that the people are voting for them simply because they don't want to empower one party to be overly powerful. Um, The idea that they really are serving to cause a need for discussion rather than ramrodding. And so I'm still kind of excited to see what they do. Not necessarily optimistic we're going to see a big change in Washington, but who knows? Well, you're good at interrupting yourself today, Tim. Uh, Thanks. Uh, it's It's a gift. If you can interrupt yourself, you can interrupt anyone or something like that. I found that photo in the sofa And it's from way back in the one So I guess there's much I never told you Like who I am, who I love Where I've been and where I came from 
913 of Blue Rock Memories of six kids running around those halls Then out in the California sunshine We wore no shoes through alley-oops And shattered windows throwing baseballs Well, we went for 11 episodes, well, 10 episodes without any kind of serious mention of baseball, and then we hit episode 11, and we could not resist. Hopefully, we have plenty of Zippy listeners who are as enamored with the Cardinals as we are, because here we are in this incredible race to the postseason. We've seen some incredible games. The The series last week in Milwaukee was just stunning. How can you not talk about baseball? Right, comrade? Boy, these Cardinals, they're putting it together. They're putting it together, and it's going rather well. And when we talked about the Cardinals last time, uh, the whole season was hanging in the balance. I'm very encouraged. The Cardinals are finally coming together. Uh, and maybe by the time, again, you hear the next Zippy episode, we might even have playoff baseball to talk about it. But I'm glad our hometown team is putting it together. All the high-priced talent. You got Goldie. You got Arenado. You got Yachty. You got Wayno having a Cy Young caliber season at the age of 40. It's coming together, and it's good to see, and it makes us all happy because we expect good baseball here, not this average to bad baseball that we saw for part of this season, but good baseball. We're one of the winningest franchises in baseball history. We have the best record in August over like the past 13 seasons. So from August on, uh, we own Major League Baseball in the last 12 or 13 seasons. So that's the way to do it. Uh, and that's the way they've been doing it. I'm pretty happy. What do you think, Tim? How do you feel? I, I think this season is turning into something that is going to be treasured by every Cardinals fan. And I can't help but think it's time for our 12th World Series victory. You think about what the 2011 team was like, that incredible race towards the end. And and how can you not see that in this team? It just feels like a team that's that's meant to win and meant to not just win a few games, but win it all. I, I am so excited. It feels like the team that we thought we were getting back when we started this season, and and it felt like, okay, finally the Cardinals are ready, they're primed, we have several good pitchers, we we have these amazing outfielders and infielders, everything felt solid, and then for a lot of the season, like you said, it was average at best. This last part, though, is just amazing, and I am so excited. To me, this is why I love baseball, watching games like this. For example, last Thursday's game with with Wayno and, and it had some great moments like Wayno getting his 2000th strikeout and yet a lot of disappointment with how it started. We were about to sweep the Brewers, it felt like, and then Wayno comes in. The umpire isn't calling some of his strikes as strikes and suddenly you have a grand slam in the first few innings in, you're behind 5 nothing, and it felt like, okay, maybe this isn't going to go quite how we'd hoped. Uh, this picturesque run is going to be stopped by, of all people, Adam Wainwright, who has basically upheld this season on his own. And then the team just charges through and sweeps the Brewers. It's just amazing. I- I'm so excited about this team. I do want to evoke uh, the 2011 team because I want to remind everyone that they finished September in 2011 at 18 and 8 and this team is on a similar trajectory maybe they are prime prime to make a run even though they've got to go to that one and done uh wild card playoff game so I think we're seeing some things come together and the reason it's coming together is the uh the trade deadline acquisition 
of, of J.A. Happ and John Lester. And, you know, it didn't raise any flags at the time because these are two old guys. They were getting shelled when they were on their other team. But these two old guys have come over and they've stabilized the rotation. You know, they haven't been set Cy Young caliber, but we don't need them to be Cy Young caliber. We need them to go through innings and not get bombed by the opposing team. And that's exactly what they've done. And I think that stabilized the rotation, which stabilized the bullpen. And with the rotation and the bullpen being solid, the young kids growing into their roles. We already have veteran leadership in Arenado and Yachty. And even Harrison Bader is kind of a veteran now. Uh, that's all coming together. So young guys coming together with the old guys. Pitching staff stabilized. Bullpen stabilized. Let's do this. They look like they're arcing toward the postseason. And that's exactly what we expect here in St. Louis. Absolutely. We're seeing some great things out of the Cardinals, and it's hard to be upset because they're gonna. it looks like they're going to keep winning. So can't argue with that. So exciting postseason baseball coming. Uh, good on the L.A. Dodgers, who it's so hard to defend a championship, and it looks like they're primed. Maybe they can do it. So that'll be something to watch for later on as well. Now, let, let's go ahead and, and maybe overstep where we should be for a moment and imagine so the the cardinals are able to get through the nlds nlcs and i've just even ignored the wild card series or not series i wish it were a series the wild card game yeah what do you think the probable world series matchup would be any thoughts on what a world series rival for the cardinals would be this year it is it is very hard to handicap that who will come out of the the American League. But I'm I'm gonna surprise people a little bit. I'm gonna say that the biggest threat is actually Houston. Uh because no one's paying attention to them. They were caught up in the cheating scandal from the seventeen series, uh and it came to fruition in nineteen. And and everybody forgot about all these good players and they're still young. They still have Jose Altuve, Carlos Correa, lots of the other guys, Alex Bregman, former MVP at third base. They're a good team, and now they have a legit Hall of Fame manager in Dusty Baker, and they're putting it together, and no one notices because they just figure, oh, they're a bunch of cheaters. They'll never be able to win another game. Well, guess what? They can, and they're winning, and they're doing it. So watch out for Houston. White Sox are there as well. Can't count them out. It's it's Yankees, Red Sox, White Sox, Houston. But I'm going to say Houston. That's my bet. So, so watch the trash cans around the stadium if the World Series goes that way, huh? Hide your trash cans, but these guys still know how to play baseball. Let's put it that way. Yeah, we need to make sure to give them credit. I have to say, if I could pick a rival, not necessarily for the advantage of the Cardinals, but just for the sheer enjoyment of it, I'd get a great deal of enjoyment out of seeing a Cardinals-White Sox World Series with uh, the team coming to try to get its 12th World Series win after the 2011 series, playing against the manager who took them there in 2011. And the funny thing is, they put Tony in the Hall of Fame, in the Baseball Hall of Fame, after he retired from the Cardinals, and he's back. So, And he's leading another team into the postseason. It's absolutely incredible, and he's 76 years old now. This is, this is a humongous story. And to come back to St. Louis, where I think it's fair to say he's beloved, I mean, that's not going to be, that's not going to be a contentious, it'll be hard fought, but it won't be contentious. There'll be a lot of warm feeling. 
I think, from those two sides. I think Lance Lynn coming back to the Cardinals, he has something to prove to the Cardinals as well. So I think that would be fun. Cardinals and White Sox for all the marbles, I would take it. I would take it. Yeah. So that'll that'll be great fun, and that's that's just what a beautiful game baseball is. Even when it's poorly managed, the MLB is poorly managed in different ways, and the owners do stupid things, and the, the commissioner does dumb things every once in a while. The beauty of the game still comes through, and the brightness of the stars still comes through. So I'm loving baseball this year, loving the way the politics, the politics, the, <laughs> the playoff matchups are setting themselves up. So that'll be great fun. I think you're right. It's going to be so good no matter how it comes out. I, I really think the Cardinals should be able to go deep into October if they can just get past that one wild card game. Oh, that would be great. In any case, though, amen to that. Baseball is just such a fun game, and I love what happens every summer when the Cardinals are playing and what it does for our city. This city just, you, you can tell how much the Cardinals aren't, they're not just a team that we root for and love. The Cardinals and St. Louis just go together like toasted ravioli and thin crust Provel-based pizza. It's just meant to be. <laughs> Good one, Tim. Hey, Jason, you know, baseball players spend a lot of time working on building up strength, being ready to achieve the great feats of athleticism that they do. And one thing that strikes me a great deal is how much we struggle to do the same thing when it comes to our faith. We we may confess that we believe in Jesus, that we want to be more like him, and yet it's really hard. And I don't say this as a criticism to others because I can fall into the same trap, but it can be really hard oftentimes to just take some time and try to grow our spiritual muscles. But that's what I love about faithtree.com grow. I hope our listeners have been hearing these, these ads and checking it out because you can go to Faith Tree Grow and, and find a short devotional or a longer sermon. You can find something from this week, or you can go and find a topic that you're interested in or wrestling with, and you can spend some time and hear from others who have studied God's Word, who are ready to encourage you and help you to apply it. It's a great way to grow your spiritual muscles and be ready for the challenges we face in life. So, if you haven't already, I certainly encourage our listeners, go and check out faithtree.com's grow site. It's at grow.faithtree.com. That music was certainly mysterious, Jason, and that seems fitting because as we continue to trail along as you're going through the Bible in order, we come to a very mysterious chapter. What chapter is that and what's going on that's mysterious there? We're in Genesis 14, um, and Abraham becomes aware there is a battle with some kings and they wage some war. But in the midst of that, after that, uh, this strange man who claims to be a priest of the Most High brings out bread and wine, and he seems to come from nowhere. And we're thinking, why is this guy coming from nowhere? And what's with the bread and wine? Honestly, what is with the bread and wine? Um, But one thing I love about that is as Christians, we can look back and then look forward to what we know in Jesus and 
see that, of course, as a picture of the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, as some call it. Uh, and we can see that this guy, Melchizedek, this high priest, is not attached to any of the priestly lines in Israel or the lines descended from Aaron that would come later. So, in a way, he can be a priest for all of us and one who makes an offering for all of us. And he pays, here's the mysterious thing about it, he pays tithes to Abraham, which is strange. Um, and we still don't quite really know what that means. But we know that the author from the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the author of the book of Hebrews picks up on this strange guy that comes out of nowhere offering bread and wine and says Jesus is the high priest in this line. And he's not attached to any of the priestly line that was attached to Aaron and his sons. And that's sort of fitting because if you remember, Romans chapter 4 was the promise given to Abraham before he was circumcised. Yes, it was before. It was not after. So he could be the father of all of us, those who are circumcised and those who are Gentiles who are not circumcised. So God is raising up a family after the order of the high priest Melchizedek, including our Lord Jesus Christ, which encompasses the whole world, the children of Israel who lived under the law of Moses and those who don't, who live according to the promise given to Abraham, which is by faith. So what a wonderful thing that even all the way back in Genesis, we can be reminded not only of our great sacrament, our great meal as the church, as Christians in the Lord's Supper in Genesis 14, but also be reminded of Abraham, who in the end is the father of of us all. Um, We are the many nations that were promised to Abraham, whether we knew it or not. And now in Christ, we're brought together as one in Christ the high priest, and there is no other priest, and we're waiting for no one else except for him to return. And that was a promise given all the way back to Abraham, even before Abraham knew what was going on. And that brings us, kind of reminds us of what the Lord himself said when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, And what an encouragement it is to know that, that even if we didn't directly receive the promises that were given to Abraham as children of Israel, we still have received them through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, again, is the one who was promised all the way back in Deuteronomy 18. We can jump forward a little bit. So Israel knew that someone was coming, someone who would be risen up, a prophet, just like Moses uh, and just like Abraham. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. So how thankful we can be that he is here and that he has given his gospel to us, his good news of forgiveness and mercy through his sacrifice on the cross and his glorious resurrection. So uh, that was a bit of a babble. You're the pastor. You can finish that off. Well, those are, there are so many good things that you said there that I'd love to, to touch on. I think one of them, though, is just how you pointed out the connections we see with Melchizedek. And it's fascinating to me because if 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 I were the novelist, I wish I were. And when I read a really good novelist or storyteller, oftentimes that storyteller will introduce a character early in the story who seems like almost a dead end. Really interesting, really engaging. You want to know more, the character just disappears. And then you start to forget about the character or you think, well, that was just to distract me until you get to the very last chapter or last chapters of the book or the last act of the play. And then suddenly that character's back and you think, wow, okay, now it all makes sense. Now I know why I was supposed to invest in that character, even though it seemed like a dead end. What's striking to me... Yeah, what, I'm sorry. What's really wonderful about Melchizedek is, you know, I wouldn't consider myself a scholar of the Old Testament or anything, but yeah, 
you almost forget about him, and then you're like, oh yeah, I remember that guy from when he brought brought out bread and wine to Abraham in Genesis 14, and you start seeing the connection. You're like, oh, maybe something really big is happening here with Jesus, um, and that's that's the connection that we need to draw. Right. Is go. Maybe there's something really to this Jesus person, and we need to look into that and draw as many connections to that as we can. So, again, that's the glory of the Scripture, the wisdom of God to bring it all together into one thing. Absolutely. I know you have a great appreciation for that as well, Tim. Yeah, and I think it's so neat to see the ultimate author do this as he writes the story of history, because if the whole Bible were, were written in one sitting or by one person, if some apostle had sat down and written all of what we call the Bible, we'd be tempted to say, well, you created this character of Melchizedek to set up for the Messiah. You you were just setting yourself up earlier in the story. And yet, we know that that was recorded hundreds, if not thousands of years before Jesus came about and before we see the fulfillment of it. And then a thousand years be- before Christ, we have David talking about Melchizedek in Psalm 110, which really doesn't make any sense if you don't know who the Messiah is. It's sort of this bizarre riddle of a psalm where you have David saying, the Lord said to my Lord, go and I will make your enemies a footstool. But it goes on to say that this this Lord who's David's Lord, who's being spoken to by God Most High, is going to make that addressee a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus brings up this riddle when he's talking to the Pharisees, because it doesn't make any sense in the way that we would have expected if we were pre-Christ trying to anticipate the future. The Pharisees obviously didn't see it. And yet you see here once again how God is setting up the story, and he's setting up as a master storyteller, that the only one who could actually set up history to be fulfilled in a certain way, God, the one who's in control of all things, is setting up these clues so that when he actually comes and brings salvation into his world, it all falls together. And so what what we could only dream of doing in fiction, God does in reality. And to me, that that's just awe-inspiring on the one hand, and it's also really reassuring because the story isn't done yet. And the temptation can be to think, well, okay, so God's done great things in the past, but can God do great things in the future? Is God going to be able to bring out the future that, that a believer would hope for? And yet, Here, as we see history that's already unfolded, history where God had laid out part of it millennia before other parts of it, we see the assurance that God will finish the story as he's promised, because the God who can cause Melchizedek to come to Abraham, and then to have that recorded in his word, and then have one of his kings, King David, write a psalm that refers to it, and then can bring in the Messiah who fulfills it, and then can have the author of Hebrews refer back to it, it's the God who's going to do everything else he said he's going to do to it. And, and how amazing is that, that? That in this, we see the preview of the Messiah. But we also see the assurance that God is the God who is going to continue to do what he's always done. And so that goes into where the author of Hebrews can call us to follow the great cloud of witnesses because we're following a cloud of those, we're following the people who have run the race, who are following a God who's capable of actually authoring history, not just watching it, not just trying to influence it, but actually author it. And how amazing is that? And what a great gift it is that we can have all those scriptures and look back on those scriptures and draw the connections in the light of Christ. And I think that's one thing that's encouraging to me is not only the faithfulness that you talked about, but the way 
that the words from Psalm 110 are in the mouth of Jesus. So Jesus does not allow us to say, well, maybe somebody else is putting these words in the mouth of Jesus, and Jesus didn't really see himself as God. Yes, he did, because the only way that you ask that question of the Pharisees in Matthew 22 there, um, and and you know you're not going to get an answer, is if you know exactly who you are and what it means, and you're ready to take that on. And so he offers that challenge to us if we're doubters or we're unbelieving. But for us who already believe, what a great encouragement that our Lord Jesus knew exactly who he was and what he was there to do, and that he was in this long line of God's faithfulness to his people, and that he would be the ultimate expression of that faithfulness by his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. Absolutely. And that's encouraging to me. I know we kind of repeated ourselves there, but I just wanted to end on that encouraging note. That is a wonderful note to end on, and of course it is unfortunately time for us to end. This always goes by too quickly. We come to the end of each episode, and of course we hope that you feel that it comes by too quickly as well. We'd love to hear from you, whether you have enjoyed this episode, whether you hated this episode, whether you wish we would have spent more time on a topic or can't understand why we could possibly obsess on the Cardinals for so long. Whatever it might be, we'd love to hear from you. And you can go ahead and write us. We have a button at zippythewondersnail.com to send us an email, or you can just write to zippy at zippythewondersnail.com. We'd love to hear feedback from you. We'd also love it if you would share this podcast with your friends. We're, We're hoping to bring a bit of a different discourse, talking about news and culture, talking about politics, but not in the way that we often hear in believing circles. And we hope that you are finding it refreshing. We hope that you'd help us to find other people who would be refreshed by it as well. And of course, we love sharing about the scriptures, and we love when you help us to share. So please do share. Please follow us on your favorite podcasting app. And we can't wait to see you again next time, Jason. As always, it is such a joy to do this with you. Thanks, Tim. 